Good. Well, welcome. Glad you're here and um, excited about spending this, the next few minutes together. A little while ago, I was cleaning um, some paperwork off of, we have this big counter in the hallway in the back of our house. We call it the back counter. And uh, do you know what goes on the back counter? Everything goes on the back counter. That's right. Uh, laundry that's folded or maybe not. Uh, my old sermon notes. Kids' backpacks get dropped off there. Sometimes when we're not sorting the mail, it ends up there. All kinds of things are on the back counter. It's really this really powerful, useful space when it's clean and accessible, when, and, and occasionally it is. <laughs> Every once in a while we can see it, right? And so I'm, I'm back there and I'm cleaning some stuff that is mine and my responsibility to take care of for sure the other day, and I'm going through some paper and I find a written set of directions, like a handwritten in pencil on white eight and a half by 11 sheet paper, RT on fifth, you know, LT on joiner. Do you remember this? Uh, we got cross, uh, what did it say? Cross Nicholas, it said three, light, three uh, driveways to the left, don't remember the name, look for the blue van. It was like this written out um, set of directions, and I felt like I was holding this ancient artifact. Right? Nobody does this anymore. Nobody writes handwritten step-by-step directions for anybody anymore. There was a time when you ha- that was like a regular part of your, of your deal. If you needed to get anywhere, you needed to ask somebody who knew how to get there to actually articulate and write down uh, step-by-step directions in order for you to arrive at the right place. You don't know where you're going. Someone has to tell you the directions to get there. And some people, maybe you remember this, uh, some people were really good at it, and then some people were just really not very good at it. Like the people who were good at it could get you like hundreds of miles away in three turns. And it was just so simple. You could just follow that. You didn't even have to write it down. They would just say left, left, right, and, and they'd explain it to you in ways that were super simple, super effective. And then there were people who were just not very good at giving directions but wanted to give you directions, uh, none the same. Like there's a, there, there's a couple of types, in my, in my opinion at least. There's the person who just buries you with too many details, you know. Yeah, you go to the gas station. It used to be a Shell. Now it's a Chevron. It used to be, I can't remember what it used to be. Maybe it was a Valera. You know the one that used to be a Valera, but it's not a Valera anymore. Go to that. It's right across the street from that big tree. You used to climb on that tree when you were a little kid. It was so amazing, that tree. And so don't turn there. Go beyond that to the next intersection. You'll remember the next intersection. It has that great restaurant. We used to love going to that restaurant all the time. It's not there anymore, so you won't see it. But go past that, and it's just, you're like, oh, I can't follow this at all. And then there's the person who gives you directions, but you have no idea where you're supposed to go. You know, they just go to the road. You know the road. Just go to the road, and then go that way, and you can't miss it. And you're like, no, I'm, I'm asking you direct because I'm afraid I actually will miss it. I need to know how to get there. And they're just, no, you know, it's the, you can't miss it. I don't know why that has become a part of almost everybody's, you can't miss it. So I'm an idiot is what you're saying, right? <laughs> I'm an idiot if I'm late uh, and I don't arrive on time. So nobody gives, uh, like, you know, turn-by-turn directions anymore. People just give an address. That's all we do now. Just give an address because we all carry computers in our pockets. And we can just plug it in or talk to it. And it'll give, us, it'll give us step-by-step directions on how to get to where we're going. So the tools have changed, right? The methods have changed. Of course, they always will. But here's what remains the same. We still need to know how to get places. We still need to know the way. So what I want to do today, it's the second Sunday of Advent. It's the Christian season leading up to Christmas, in case Advent is sort of a new word for you. And our Advent series is called Hopeful. And today I want to talk about the way of hope. The way of hope. Not a way of hope, the way of hope. That's what I want to talk about. 
Or, if you like, the way of hope according to the Bible. Or the Christian way of hope. And I think it could be helpful this morning to think of hope, not as some sort of elusive emotion, but as a real thing. Try to think about hope as a real thing, a concrete thing. And even better, think about um, being hopeful as a state of being, as a concrete place to which you can arrive, a hopeful place. So think about hope as a real thing, and think about hopeful as a place at which you can arrive. And what I want to do is talk about how we get there, how we get there, how we get to that place where we are authentically hopeful. We are actually, not necessarily happy, but actually characterized by a deep and sincere hope. I want to talk about the way of hope. So let's look at Luke chapter 3. is on page 6, I'm sorry, 716. Um, there are four books at the beginning of the New Testament. Um, they're called Gospels, which means the good news, and they're written by four different people. These are stories about the life and teachings of Jesus, and there's differences, and there's parts about them that are the same. One is written by Matthew. He writes for a Jewish audience. Then there's Mark. Uh, then there's Luke. And then there's John. Does anyone know what's interesting about Luke in terms of who he is and his background? What sets him apart? He's a doctor. Anybody else know anything about him? He's a historian. So those are two main sort of um, uh, vocations that he's associated with. What about his, his, uh, his racial background or his ethnic background? Is he Jewish? He's not Jewish. That's what really makes him stand out. The rest of the gospel writers are writing from a Jewish perspective to a Jewish audience. Luke brings this interesting perspective. He's not from a Jewish background, and so he's just got sort of a different perspective on things. And he kicks off chapter 3 of, uh, of his gospel with this massive sentence that sets the context like a legit historian can. Let's look at this sentence. This thing is epic. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trichonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Yes. That's a sentence, so let's pause there and let me kind of try to break this down and tell you why I think it's significant. Luke's establishing in no uncertain terms the context of his story. He's a historian, and he's about to tell you a story about this man named John. We know him as John the Baptist, and what he's doing is using, uh, as reference points, significant figures from both a Roman perspective and a Jewish perspective. So, it's the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, better known to us throughout history as Julius Caesar. His mama named him Tiberius. He takes the name Julius later in his career. Tiberius is the second Roman emperor. The first is Caesar Augustus. He's the one that really establishes this Roman cult. He's the one that kind of takes on this self of himself as divine, sees himself as divine. He ends up adopting Tiberius, and Tiberius becomes the second emperor Tiberius's reign begins in 14 AD. Think of the word, or the number 14. This is now his 15th year of his reign. So we're in year what? 14 and 15 is 29. All right, are you with me? 
All right. So uh, tw- Jesus is coming into his public ministry in the next couple of uh, months or weeks. Tiberius is the Roman emperor. Why is that important? Because Israel is not an independent nation really anymore. Israel has been one of the major world powers, but it's not anymore. There is a Roman emperor in control. Israel is sort of being allowed to exist within the vast Roman empire. You need to imagine life with an emperor. Uh, There is limited freedom. You are not in charge. It doesn't matter what your cultural positions of authority are, because guess who's on top? The Roman emperor. There's also a Roman governor. His name's Pontius Pilate, and he reign, his region is in Judea, which is where most of Jesus' life and ministry kind of plays out. He's going to play a, Pilate's going to play a big role in the end of Jesus' life. He's the governor that oversees the trial of Christ, um, who thinks that Jesus is an act, actually is innocent, but he's afraid of the crowd. He cowardly, uh, in, in, a, in an act of cowardice, washes his hands of responsibility for Jesus' fate and hands him over to be killed. It's Pontius Pilate. He's the Roman governor. Why is there a Roman governor in a Jewish region? Well, it's because the Jewish leadership is all messed up. It's a disaster. Um, There would have been a Jewish king. His name was Herod. Herod the Great was in charge, was the king when Jesus was born. He's the one who issues the census, and that's why Mary and Joseph have to get on the donkey and go to Bethlehem. You remember that story. He's now gone, but he's got four sons, and they they have divided his kingdom. That's why they're called tetrarchs, because they're in charge of a fourth of the area. So there's Herod, sort of Herod Jr. Uh, he's Herod Antipas. He's in charge of Galilee. There's his brother, Herod Philip. He's got another couple towns. There's his other brother, Lysanias. He's got another couple towns. And then there's another brother that isn't even mentioned here by Luke. Um, he plays in later. His name is Herod Archelaus. He was so bad as a Jewish king that the Romans just booted him out. And they replaced him with their own guy, a Roman governor. That's Pilate. That's Pontius Pilate. That's why Pilate's there, because not only is there an emperor over it all, but the Jewish leadership, the Jewish king and kingdom, it's disintegrating. It's a total mess. They're gossiping. They're not agreeing. One likes the other brother's wife. She ends up at his house. It's a total disaster, right? And then finally, there is a Jewish priesthood, which is also a mess. There should only be one high priest at any given time, just one high priest. Luke mentions two. Why is that? Well, because Annas was the high priest, and now it's Caiaphas. But nobody really respects Caiaphas, so they keep going back to Annas. So Annas isn't in charge formally, but he actually is in charge. This is why Jesus is brought to Annas' house on the night of his trial first, before they go to Caiaphas, because he's like the godfather. What he says actually still goes, even though Caiaphas has has the title. Right? So you should get the sense that the leadership and the structure in this scene is chaotic. It's a mess. and that's, uh, So there's this emperor, there's this governor, there's a few kings, there's a couple of high priests. And in, into this chaos, Luke writes, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So this is the guy we know as John the Baptist, and here's why. Verse 3 of chapter 3. John went into the country around the Jordan, which is a river, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What kind of baptism? A baptism of repentance 
For what purpose? For the forgiveness of sins, right? So this is interesting because we think of baptism uh, from a Christian standpoint because that's how we've essentially known baptism in our culture and for the last 2,000 years. But baptism at this time, it was just an initiation rite. It was just a way of entering into a community or a group. So there would be different baptisms for different clubs, groups, religious organizations all over the place. People were familiar with the practice of baptism as an initiation rite. What made John's baptism unique was that it was specifically a baptism of repentance. This is interesting. This is unique. This is a distinction. In other words, it was the initiation rite into a life marked um, by turning away from yourself as king or in charge and turning toward God. Repentance means turning around. It means changing your mind. It means shifting your ultimate allegiance away from you to God. That's repentance. Where is your ultimate loyalty? And why would I do this? Why would I undergo a baptism of repentance in order to work off my sins? No. Luke clarifies it's to be forgiven of my sins. So that's interesting. Other baptisms marked the beginning of long, complicated, arduous lists of tasks that you would perform in order to arrive at some desired point. Kind of like earning your wolf badge or something. You join the Cub Scouts, that's like your baptism into the club, and then Cub Scout life from there on is a list of jobs that you do in order to get a series of awards and you culminate in the, as an Eagle Scout or whatever. John's baptism is not like that. John's baptism is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So Luke, who's writing, starts with this long set of historical information because he's trying to paint a picture. And the picture is of this once great Jewish nation which has eroded into gossip TV politics and corrupt, impotent religious institutions. Does it sound familiar? Yeah. It's, it's not that far off of what we see all around us all the time now. So against this backdrop, and for the first time in 400 years, the word of God comes to a prophet. There's actually a person authentically speaking for God now. His name is John, and his message is about the way to God. His message is about how to get back to God. So the scene is a hopeless scene, but now John is showing the way of hope. He's going to show us the way of hope. Luke wants to make sure that his readers get this, not just those from a Gentile or non-Jewish background, but also those uh, from, with a Jewish background. And so he connects the story now to a Jewish prophet, Isaiah, verse 4 of chapter 3. It is as it is written in the book of the words, Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, Every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads will become straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. This is Isaiah, almost a thousand years before, before uh, Luke is writing. So the idea is that John the Baptist is paving the way of hope. 
That's his job. That's his role in the world, to make the way of hope. He is the voice in, a, in the wilderness. He's preparing a way, and he's also making that way accessible. It's like he's the heavy equipment operator who gets the task of making a road to a place that has, the road's never been there, and the place is a new place. It, let's call the place Hope. And we hire a heavy equipment excavation uh, company to make a way to the place called Hope. And so they're going to like push a bunch of dirt into valleys and they're going to raise the elevation level and they're going to knock the tops off of the mountains and they're going to like diminish the grade so you can actually drive into this place. They're going to straighten out all those crazy curves that keep people from getting there. They're going to make the road straight. They're going to smooth out the road so that you can have access to Hope so that you know the way and you can actually get there. That's why. That's why he's doing what he's doing, to grant access to hope or to quote Isaiah so that all people will see God's salvation. So that all people will see God's salvation. It's like John is writing a set of directions. We're like, hey, John, do you know how to get to hope? Because I type in the address hope on my phone and it doesn't work, right? So do you know, John, how to get to hope? And he would write down directions for you. And do you know what he would write? Repent. <laughs> U-turn, maybe he would say. But he would write, essentially he would write the word repent. He's writing directions to hope. He's giving copies to everyone. Uh, in other words, John's role has to do with making a way for people to return to a meaningful relationship with God who is their maker. And what is the way back to God? Because he's, a, he's actually not using a bulldozer. That's a metaphor. And he's actually not actually writing directions. That's also a metaphor. The way to hope, according to John, is really dramatically simple. It's repent. Repentance is the way to hope. And I hope that strikes you as strange because it did me. And I think it's worth leaning into. Within about a year of John beginning to baptize people, he is arrested and he is imprisoned because he speaks truth to power. In his case, he speaks directly and publicly to Herod Antipas because Herod Antipas has decided his brother Philip's wife is attractive or whatever, and now she's going to be his wife. So you got Herod Antipas grabbing Herod Philip's wife, whose name is Herodias, I mean, you can't write this stuff any better. This is like a daytime reality TV show about a family that's all mixed up relationally. They all share the same name, and there's all kinds of sexual explicit kind of things uh, happening behind the scenes, right? Except it's actually worse in this case because this is the house of Herod. They're supposed to be showing people the way to God. Officially, he's the king of the Jews. He should be telling people how to get to God, but he's completely shirking his responsibility. In fact, it's an absolute chaotic mess. Now skip forward to chapter 7 of Luke. It's way up on the top of the right-hand column of page 721. <clears throat> I want to show you something that I read this summer that I don't ever remember seeing before, and, and I think it relates to this and, in fact, just illumines it in a way that is crystal clear. By the time we get to Luke chapter 7, John has been not baptizing anymore. He's been languishing in prison for at least a year his followers come to Jesus. He still has followers, and now they come to Jesus because poor John is wondering, what is going on? This is not the way I thought it was all going to go down. And he asks this really heart-wrenching question. Are you really the one, Jesus? It's just so sad to me. Are you really the one? 
It's sad to me because John was the first one to publicly declare that Jesus was the one, right? He's the one that says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Like, this is the guy who's going to save our whole nation. Fast forward a year, he's in some cold, dank prison, and he's like, I'm not even sure I was right. This has not worked the way I thought it would. There's, this is not, I don't see any redemption happening here. I don't, this is not what we expected I see no future for myself here. It's just terrible. He's questioning his conviction. He's beginning to doubt. And so he sends word with his friends to Jesus. You can read about this a little bit higher, uh, chapter 7, verse 20. And he says this, are you the one who is to come or, this just rips your heart out, should we expect another? And so Jesus sends John's friends back They hang out with him all day. They watch what he does. There's a whole chapter about it, chapter 7. And then Jesus says this, Tell John what you've seen today and what you've heard. The blind see, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Which is Jesus saying, Yes, (laughs) I am the one. Yes, I am the one. And so then John's friends leave to go and deliver the message back to John in prison. And Jesus does this surprising thing. He turns around to the crowd and he starts praising John, who's some other place in jail. And he starts talking about how faithful he is and how he's a prophet and how Malachi, the last prophet 400 years ago, was actually talking about John when he said there's going to be someone who's a forerunner to the Messiah. There's going to be someone who's going to come and show the way to the world, the way to me and the way to hope and the way to God. And Jesus is like, that guy, John, he's the one that Malachi was talking about 400 years ago. He's the true prophet. John is the one who pointed people to me and to make a way for hope. And then it's like Luke, who is this, you know, non-Jewish historian. He's writing all this out. It's like he anticipates people like you and me swimming in all this Jewish detail and just kind of feeling like I've lost it. I've zoned out. I'm thinking about the game later because this is just too many details for me. And so he does something that is really rare for Luke, and I think it's totally fascinating. He inserts a parenthetical statement. That's exciting. Parentheses. Yes, he inserts this statement. He pauses the dialogue of the story. He almost never does this, and then he drops in the voice of the narrator, which is himself, And he explains the whole thing to us because we need to figure this out. We don't get it. Like this is is so much happening. And this is what he writes. Verse 29 and 30. Parentheses. It's like he says, okay, here we go. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, they acknowledged that God's way was right because They had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves. Why? Because they had not been baptized by John. Isn't that crazy? So all the people, even the tax collectors, which are like the worst of the worst from a Jewish perspective, they sold out. When they heard Jesus' words, they acknowledged God's ways right. Why do they do that? Because they've been baptized by John. And then you got this other group, the Pharisees, highly legalistic, religious experts, super Jews, and 
Experts in the law, like the, the books of Moses, the religious law, they, re, they don't just stay neutral. They don't just go, hmm, that's interesting. They reject God's purpose for them. And you're like, why would you do that? Because they have not been baptized by John. <laughs> so I'm trying to warm up with a little bowl of instant coffee in a monastery in Italy this summer, and I read this, and I just go, this is incredible. There's this such dramatic, unusual clarity with this statement. There's so many both and statements in scripture. And here is just a black and white either or scenario. These people get it. These people don't get it. Right? And the people who get it are the ones who were baptized by John. Crystal clear. And the ones who don't get it, they were not baptized by John. What was John's baptism again? The baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It was a turning around. It was the, I'm not going to be in charge of my life anymore. God's going to be in charge of my life now. It was, I'm going to shift my allegiance from me to God for the forgiveness of my sins. In other words, John's baptism was about coming to God as the source of hope. That's what it's about. The baptism of John is not about, Nate, you got to figure this out. you got to rely on yourself. you got to like do... It's about coming to God as my source of hope. He's my source of hope. And so what's so startling to me about this is how Luke establishes baptism as the line, which divides one group from another. And it's not about the legalistic practice of the event itself. It's about what it communicates, about what it represents, about what happens in that moment. So one more time, just to be as clear as I can. One group, they hear Jesus, they acknowledge God's way is right. Why did they do that? Luke could not be clearer. Because they were baptized by John. In other words, because they had repented. And then there's another group. They reject God's... This should, scare, this should scare us. They reject God's plan for them. Why would you do that? Luke could not be clearer. Because they were not baptized by John. In other words, they refused to repent. So Luke is making this remarkable, incisive, like a doctor observation. Here's why I see it. I'm not even Jewish. <laughs> but let me see you how I, let me tell you how I see it. I see a bunch of people, even some really unusual, notorious sinners, giving their life to God. And I see a bunch of people who you'd think would get it, but they're actually rejecting God. And the difference is one group's repentant and another group is just refusing to repent. Absolutely no, we've got it figured out. So it's remarkable because of the people who are in each group. Tax collectors get it. Religious experts who should get it and should be teaching others how to get to God, they're actually rejecting it. And it's also remarkable because there's just one thing that separates one group from the other and it's repentance or lack thereof. So in conclusion, I just want to say that the message today is just very simple. It's almost alarmingly simple, and that's this, that the way of hope is repentance. That's the way of hope. That's how you get to hope. The way of hope is repentance. Those are the directions. Repent. Are you looking for hope in your life? The way to get there is to repent. 
Do you need a hopeful perspective on what's happening in your family right now? Well, it begins with repentance, turning around, acknowledging need. Do you need a hopeful perspective on your financial situation? It begins with repentance. Ah, man, I've been doing this like it's mine, like I'm in charge. It's wrong. I need to repent of that. Do you need a a hopeful perspective on your physical situation? It starts with repentance. Repent. Turn back to God. Shift your loyalty to God, not yourself. Your greatest allegiance should be uh, to God. Acknowledge and declare your need for God. For many of us, this is 101. This is basic stuff. But it bears repeating. How do you get through that valley that you're in right now? You repent. How do you get over that mountain that's just so overwhelming? You're like, there's no way I can handle that. The way over it is is by repenting. How do you deal with all these crazy turns that life throws at you like you had no idea this was going to happen? How could you have foreseen this around the bend? Repent, that's the way through. The way through is repentance. Have you ever repented before the Lord? Maybe that sounds like old-fashioned preacher language to you, but have you ever repented before the Lord? Have you ever said, God, I am sorry because I've been acting like I'm in charge when in fact you're the one who has given me life. I have breath because of you, and yet I'm acting like it's all about me. Sorry I've been acting like I'm in charge, like my life is mine, like my stuff is mine. Have you ever repented before the Lord? And another question, have you repented before the Lord? Some of you are like, yeah, I did that when I was like 19 or whatever. Have you repented before the Lord lately? Christian baptism is a one-time thing, but the life of repentance is ongoing. That does not stop. If, If the way to God is repentance, then you never stop repenting. You, you, you live in a continual um, position of humility and acknowledgement that your tendency is to make it all about you and that the reality and the truth of the gospel is it's actually all about God. And so constantly we're in this, this, um, this life of repentance. And let me just say this finally. The word repentance has been living in the doghouse, outside in the backyard, because for too long it's been associated with guilt angry preachers, and our worst sins. And I want to say, that's only a little part of the story. Repentance is actually, according to Luke, connected with hope. Repentance is about hope. And if we're needing hope, then we got to re-engage this historic practice of repenting before the Lord. This is the way. This is what's written on the instructions. So as we prepare to celebrate the coming of Jesus this Christmas, I just want to invite us, and it really is, it's an invitation from a brother and a pastor and a friend um, to respond by engaging in a short season of repentance right now. And uh, I want to invite you to stand up with me um, just to kind of begin with a kind of a, a posture from which you can go any direction here, and there's no pressure, but I do want to encourage you to to take a posture that would communicate to your heart 
what needs to happen. And maybe you remain standing. Maybe you sit right back down and you just sit in your seat and, and talk to the Lord, and that's totally fine. Maybe it would be helpful for you to turn around and kneel at your chair. Maybe you want to come out and kneel at these altars. Uh, that's what they're for. Maybe you want to go in the back or, or walk outside. Um, but I want to invite you. We'll just take two minutes as Daryl plays. I want to invite you to, and I'm going to engage in it myself. Um, let's repent. Let's prepare our hearts. Let's follow the way to hope that, that is repentance. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Have mercy, God. Have mercy. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance, O Lord. Knowing that you love us no matter what we do. Makes us want to love you too. And it's your kindness that leads us to repentance, O Lord. Knowing that you love us no matter what we do makes us want to love you too. for the grace to recognize your purposes for our lives, for the grace and the humility to um, embrace your way, acknowledge that God is right, God is right, um, grace to um, repent before you continually, um, not out of some sense of uh, miserable punishment, but out of just a desire to acknowledge who is in charge and who knows the way 
and who should be followed and trusted. So, Lord, would you fill each of us with um, with a sense of um, humility and repentance? And would you show us the way to hope? Would you take us there? In Jesus' name, amen.